Hello, and welcome to the Here and Now podcast from Federated Hermes. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist. Today's episode is a special recording of a roundtable discussion I led with my Federated Hermes colleagues, Steve Chivarone, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Asset Solutions, Sylvia Delangelo, Senior Economist, and Donald Ellenberger, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Multi-Sector Strategies on October 11th. For those who are not as familiar with Federated Hermes, I'll give you a brief introduction to our company. Federated Hermes is a global leader in active, responsible investing with more than $600 billion in assets under management. At Federated Hermes, responsibility is central to our client relationships, our long-term perspective, and our fiduciary mindset. It's part of our heritage and the foundation of our future. Our investment solutions span equity, fixed income, alternative slash private markets, multi-asset and liquidity management strategies. And with that, please enjoy this special episode. Today, we will discuss what everyone's talking about, recession. Is the recession around the quarter? That's the title of our discussion today. And I think I'd like to start out with, well, uh, is a recession around the corner maybe has a lot to do with whether or not we can beat what looks like it's become a structural global inflation problem. So let's start with you, Don. Uh, in representing the, the bond department at Federated Hermes, how's the Fed doing? They, they obviously they're behind the curve. Are they going to tighten too much? Fastest pace ever? So, so the Fed realized they made a mistake. And so they are tightening very aggressively, as aggressively as they've done since the 1980s. And they tell us that they can sidestep a recession, Linda, and deliver a soft landing as they try to slay the big inflation dragon. But remember, this is the same Fed that told us inflation would be transitory. The Fed is really faced with a terrible choice, runaway inflation, or recession. I think a soft landing is gonna be really hard to achieve because the Fed's two main tools, the Fed's fund rate and their balance sheet are just too blunt and inflation is just way too high to pull off a soft landing. And history clearly is not on the Fed side. Whenever inflation has been above 4% like it is now, and the unemployment rate has been below 5% like it is now, a recession has followed within two years every single time. The Fed has never been able to engineer a soft landing when inflation has been this high and labor markets this tight, not once. And I think that's because inflation lags the economy. Inflation keeps rising for about a year, even after the economy has rolled over. So since the Fed is chasing something that lags the economy, using blunt monetary policy tools that work with long and variable lags themselves, it's no surprise that the Fed has never been able to successfully engineer a soft landing when inflation has been way above target like it is today. They do have a very difficult job and, the, and you don't paint a very pretty picture. Of course, they're students of history too. Are they tightening though at the fastest pace ever? And then why would they do that? Because you did mention a delay on hitting the economy. What kind of a delay are you talking about? How does that make sense that they would... They go so fast and so hard. Inflation is eight and a half percent. Let me say that again. Inflation is eight and a half percent. After 40 years of not being able to get it to 2%, it's eight and a half percent. That's why the Fed is going so hard. 
they feel like they're losing credibility and they have to get it back. And they're willing to risk a recession to do that. And so when do you think it'll start to be felt in, in the markets then? Or in the economy, rather? Well, we know that monetary policy works with long and variable lags, as Friedman has famously said. Uh, I think it shows up next year. I'll turn to you now, Steve, uh, head of our multi-asset team. And I know you have a, a series of, of dashboards to help our clients and our inflation dashboard, I think called for a problematic and non-transitory problem probably early on in this situation. Um, and so now what are you thinking? Soft landing, recession, or something in between? There's always a chance of a soft landing. I'd like to say I've got a better chance of being a center in the NBA. You know, to Don's point, I'd go a step further and say that I think a recession is not something that the Fed is risking. It's not a bug at this point. I think it's a feature of their policy, right? If you go to the doctor and the doctor's going to do something, you know, they always say it's only going to be a little pinch. They never say what I'm about to do is extraordinarily painful. Well, the Fed chair looked in the camera and said, I'm going to deliver pain, and that pain is going to be a higher unemployment rate, and it's going to be a housing market correction. Uh, that is, that's a recession. That is the cure that they're prescribing here to the inflation problem. Um, and I think, you know, as we look at, at our inflation dashboard, what it has shown us early on and continues to show us is that this inflation is pervasive and it's persistent. Even as good prices or various good prices have eased in the past, the core readings have continued to move higher. And as we look out, I know we'll touch on this a little bit, I do not think that we can say with 100% certainty that we have yet seen the peak in headline inflation or core for that matter, uh, which means that there's still risk posed by inflation and still risk of ever tighter monetary policy here. And so I I wonder as we, Steve, as we uh, watch the Fed in their resolve, you know, I, I was a child of the 70s, and I remember the 70s. They were battling an inflationary problem throughout the 70s until Paul Volcker came in, and we suffered a pretty tough recession at the end, numerous recessions, but a really tough one. So when we talk about, obviously, we're going to have a recession, uh, is he, is he going to go full Volcker, do you think? Well, I think he's trying to not do what Burns did, which was, right, the Fed in the early 70s did hike rates. And then you got the 73, 74 recession, and they cut, you know, in retrospect too early and too aggressively before inflation had been crushed, which meant that with that recovery, it reaccelerated and it reaccelerated to new highs. And that's the playbook that we think is in their mind, which is to say, okay, and this was the difference in the last press conference, right? Prior to the last press conference, every economic projection that the Fed put out, was sourced in Candyland, right? Taking inflation from 9% to two with no increase in unemployment, you know, no recession. I think the last set of projections said, yes, unemployment is going to go higher, growth is going to go lower, a soft landing is gonna be more challenging, and that's not going to stop us from taking rates higher and keeping them there for some time. I thought that was a key difference, and I think it was a callback to trying not to repeat the errors of the mm-hmm. mid-70s. The question now is, will they have the resolve to actually do it? Right. Will they have the resolve? And, and Sylvia, if I bring you in as, as you are our are economist for the in, for all things international, the Fed has said, and, and, and Steve ends with an, an interesting comment, will they have the resolve to keep doing that? Now, while the Fed is raising interest rates, our already strong dollar keeps getting stronger and stronger. And as you watch central banks uh, around the world, other developed economies, central banks, who feel that they need to raise 
their interest rates. They have a much, many cases, a much tougher economy, don't they? Uh, is there a risk for other central banks that our Fed seems to continue with some sort of a resolve here? Well, I think that the risk from a stronger dollar goes beyond uh, other developed uh, central banks. Um, clearly, the Fed is uh, laser focused on domestic inflation, and correctly so. I mean, that's their mandate. Uh, but a strong dollar is a problem for the rest of the world, really. A strong dollar means uh, tighter financial conditions globally. Uh, many emerging markets are still financing themselves in dollar, and so a stronger dollar just uh, is impairing their access uh, to credit and so their growth outlook. Uh, from the perspective of uh, developed central banks, uh, well, uh, I would focus on, on Europe, where central banks are facing a, a way more difficult trade-offs between uh, inflation and, and growth. Um, inflation in Europe is mainly driven by uh, the terms of trade uh, shock uh, due to higher energy prices and the consequences, really, of the war in Ukraine. Um, and um, this, like, weakening of their currencies that they are witnessing be be because of Fed tightening, really, uh, is just making their uh, problem problems worse, uh, as it is uh, also adding to this deterioration of their terms of trade. Um, so I think that from the Fed's perspective, this is not their problem until it becomes their problem, as I think at some stage there will be uh, some feed feedback effects from these external spillovers. Well, Don, yes, we like a strong dollar, but not too strong of a dollar. And uh, maybe we're having that right now. Should the Fed consider slowing down their tightening effort in, in the name of the dollar coming down on a trade-weighted basis, should they be doing that? So the dollar impacts financial assets in many ways, as, as Sylvia so correctly pointed out. And the Fed obviously does need to keep an eye on it. But you have to remember that technically the dollar is under the purview of the Treasury Department, not the Fed. Now, having said that, the dollar's 12% rally on a trade-weighted basis this year is actually, I think, good news for the Fed because that means we're exporting inflation overseas and it helps the Fed's battle to get inflation back down to 2% here in the US. But it also creates some difficulties for the treasury market. The stronger dollar has made it much less attractive for foreigners to buy our treasury bonds because currency hedging costs have just skyrocketed. A Japanese investor who buys a US treasury bond with a 4% yield here and hedges it back into yen, actually will wind up with a negative yield. So to the extent the strong dollar helps to both reduce US inflation and it keeps rates higher, tightening financial conditions, which is the Fed's goal, then I think the Fed is happy with a strong dollar and they're not gonna stop because the dollar has gone up. They're more focused on getting inflation down and a strong dollar helps that. Well, uh, it's a big mess, Sylvia. It's a big mess that we're, we're that we're painting here today. And we've yet to talk about winter, which is coming, isn't it, in Europe? And, and as you sit over there in London, uh, uh, you know, gosh, uh, you know, good, good luck over there with the cost of energy. So um, what, sh what should we expect? Now, we've been reading that, uh, you know, that Europe is working on filling up spare capacity, bracing itself, maybe bracing its citizens 
Uh, is there going to be a really bad recession because of the energy crisis that's going on over there? Well, I think at this stage, a recession is inevitable in Europe uh, due to the increase in energy prices. Just to put things in perspective, wholesale gas prices that have come down over the last few weeks are still like 10 times higher than they were in 2020. So and previous year, so before uh, all the stress that started around the middle of 2021. Uh, so it's a massive uh, energy shock that happened in a very uh, concentrated time frame. Um, um, and looking at, at the winter, well, my base case is really for a recession that basically has probably already started and would likely continue at least until uh, the end of the first quarter of next year. Again, in my base case, I have uh, a, a contraction in uh, Eurozone GDP of about 1% uh, peak to trough. And again, that assumes that winter is normal. And so um, the Europeans will manage to balance uh, their um, gas market, really. And the problem there is that, uh, well, basically, uh, the, the European Union used to import about 40% uh, of its gas from Russia. Uh, since at least uh, June, they started to scramble and step up their programs to replace uh, the Russian gas with alternative sources, mainly LNG from the US and Qatar, but also some piped uh, gas from Algeria and Northern Africa. Um, they have uh, managed to largely uh, replenish their storages, uh, and which is good news, uh, and, and clearly a good buffer uh, looking uh, ahead. But they also need to uh, achieve some energy savings. And so uh, gas demand needs to decline by about 15% compared to last year between uh, now, basically, and, and March, uh, so, so during the winter season, which means that really there's basically no margin of errors from a European perspective uh, when we look at uh, the energy market. And if we have like a severe winter or a lack of coordination in achieving those uh, savings, I mean, the risk is that we have an even, an even harder recession in the years on this winter. I presume that the populations over there are braced. Uh, I presume that's all everybody is talking about and doing whatever they can to prepare. I would say that there are different levels of preparation. Uh, so as I said, in the European Union, uh, all the plans have been stepped up uh, in, in the summer when basically Russian first started to uh, tinker with the uh, daily supplies going through Nord Stream 1. Um, and, and the public opinion is well, well aware of the, of the issues. Over here in the UK, uh, there has been uh, less of a preparation in, in recent months, and even recently, the government has denied that there will be a need to, um, to basically cut um, electricity consumption uh, during the winter. That said, anecdotally, uh, households are getting ready, and recent retail sales data uh, show that um, households are uh, bulk buying blankets, uh, warm clothes, uh, and also energy efficient, efficient appliances. Mm -hmm. So um, people are getting ready for, for a tough winter. Okay, well, Steve, uh... Energy certainly has been weaponized, hasn't it, all around the globe. So as, as stock market investors and, you know, the energy patch, I know has been uh, that energy sector has been a great place to invest now for a couple of years and their earnings look spectacular. So what would you say? I mean, uh, it, people, are, people are torn. OK, if we're going to have a global recession, 
then maybe we should avoid energy. But if there are supply problems, should we then overweight energy? Where do we stand on that? We're neutral for that reason, Linda. I mean, the classic recession play is to be underweight the sector, but with the supply constraints that are coming and the OPEC production cut, it's hard to get too short. And so we've taken profits and we're generally neutral across portfolios. Yeah, I guess that's the, the sensible thing when you can't uh, read a binary uh, a binary situation. What else can you do now? Sylvia, as the energy patch has gotten itself uh, weaponized and you and Steve just mentioned the OPEC production cut. Um, how do you know how do we how should we be feeling about that as the United States uh, asking for some help over there and then they do exactly the opposite? As you and Steve uh, have just said, I mean, it's really a war, an energy war. And so it's hardly surprising uh, that the OPEC um, is responding to uh, OPEC plus, so including Russia, um, is responding to uh, some of the moves by the West uh, to try to put a cap on, on oil prices. Um, and I think that going forward, the, the situation is not going to change. And as Steve said, it, it, it's going to be really about how demand will pan out. Uh, and the wild card there, I think, is China, um, where we might see a bit of a growth rebound if they lift uh, the, the COVID restrictions. Uh, but again, um, I think from another perspective, it will be hard to maintain prices above uh, $90 a barrel in a deteriorating uh, demand environment. And Linda, th this is a key point for the inflation outlook and, and where the inflation dashboard comes into play, because with core inflation having continued to rise since the last peak in headline CPI, and I think we're going to find out tomorrow that it rose you know, a bit further. You really only need a mid-90s price in WTI in December, which is you know three or four dollars higher than it is today, in order to get headline inflation back above that 9.1% peak we saw earlier this year. And then that changes a lot of equations. The market feels pretty comfortable about a four and a half percent terminal rate. Well, not if you get a new high in inflation, perhaps. And I think the Fed. Right. The Fed can't back off in that environment because if they throw the fastest rate hike cycle ever at, at this inflation problem and fail to break its back, what happens to inflation expectations? Right. That they, they could become unmoored. And so this energy issue is, is in fact central to the inflation call, which is central to what the central bank's going to do, which I think increases the risk. You know, of recession as we get into 23 per Don's and original point. Again, a big mess. Now, Sylvia, this is a, this is a just, you know, just a $90, just a few dollars away, as Steve has said, exacerbates our, our we wish we thought we had peak inflation problem. If China, the second largest economy in the world decides, all right, uh, we're, you know, we have enough vaccines or whatever, we can open up our economy. Are we right back at the $110 and plus on a, Barrel of oil? I mean, base case, I doubt it really. Um, so uh, if China lifts uh, the COVID, the zero COVID policy uh, that is currently in place, uh, then of course there will be a bit of a technical growth rebound for sure. But I don't expect like a growth boom given the structural challenges that the Chinese economy is dealing with. And here really I'm thinking about the property sector that is like bloated. Uh, it used to account for like 25 to 30% of the economy compared to uh, a usual weight of 15, uh, maximum 20% of the economy in, in, in more normal uh, situations. So uh, that property sector 
needs to correct. The correction will be uh, will have happened over several years. Policymakers will try, try to smooth it out, uh, but that makes me a bit uh, cautious, let's say, with respect to Chinese growth in the next few years. Um, I'd like to move over to you now, Donna. The, the title of our of our call today is a recession around the corner. And I know that a few months ago, there was a big debate as to whether or not we're already in a recession, the technical recession, you know, two negative quarters year over year. How can you be in a recession when the job market is as tight as a drum? Are we in a recession right now, Don? Well, right now, Atlanta Fed GDP growth is over 2%. So, so probably not, but there are a lot of reasons, Linda, why I think a recession is coming next year. You know, for example, the index of leading economic indicators, which is actually a pretty good indicator predicting recessions, and I don't think gets enough attention from investors, uh, but the index of leading economic indicators has been negative for six consecutive months. And, and I'm an old timer, so I still follow money supply like I did back in the 80s. The growth rate of money supply has collapsed from 26% a couple of years ago to basically flat over the past three months. And the big drop we're seeing in bank deposits right now means money supply growth will probably soon turn negative. The last time money supply contracted on a sustained basis was during the Great Depression in the 1930s. Yield curve, also a very reliable inflation indicator, and it not only has been inverted for months, but the forward curves predict it'll stay inverted for at least another year. Global Purchasing Managers Index, that's fallen below 50 indicating a contraction in the global manufacturing sector. You can even see that in the cost to ship a container from China to Los Angeles. It's fallen from $14,000 in January to $2,000 today. And the economy is also gonna to have to deal with the lagged impact of the most aggressive Fed tightening cycle in 40 years. The Fed can't really address these supply issues, so they're trying to suppress aggregate demand. And what's driving aggregate demand and what I think is the biggest imbalance in the economy today is the tight labor market. Since two-thirds of the cost of most companies is labor, the only way to get the inflation rate down to the Fed's 2% target is to get labor costs down. And the way you do that is by driving the unemployment rate up. The Fed knows that, and it's why they're forecasting the unemployment rate is going to rise nine-tenths of a percent from 3.5% today up to 4.4%. But here's the thing. Every single time the unemployment rate has risen five-tenths of a percent, the economy has always fallen into recession every single time. So the Fed, by telling us they expect the unemployment rate to rise nine-tenths of a percent, the Fed is either subtly or perhaps unwittingly telling us that a recession is coming. So here's another way to think of it. Okay? GDP growth was basically zero for the first nine months of this year. So how in the world is GDP growth going to be positive next year with housing now rapidly contracting and the Fed that's hell-bent on pushing the unemployment rate up? You know, this, this has occurred to me for you know, quite some time now is that, uh, again, as a child of the 70s, and they called that the dismal decade back then a terrible beast of inflation to be fought. I think there are similarities now, and maybe the, maybe the non-similarities are even more scary right now. And yet anybody that's 50 years, 50 years uh, or younger, really paying close attention, doesn't really know what that would feel like. 
uh, what it, it might feel like. And, you know, I can recall, Dawn, in, the, in recent, say, 10 years or so, joking. We were all joking. The Fed will, will the Fed never allow us to go into recession again. The Fed always came to the rescue, didn't it? And, but not this time, huh? No, I, I don't think the Fed can come to the rescue um, because inflation is just too big of a problem. And I don't think the Fed would consider a recession next year as the worst possible outcome if that meant they were able to get inflation back under control. I would not underestimate Chair Powell's determination here. He wants to avoid the stop and go monetary policy of Arthur Burns so that he doesn't have to use the scorched earth policy of Paul Volcker. So now, Steve, give us something positive here. Come on, we're looking for something positive to say here because, whoa, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you down the path. Yep. The, jo- the job openings, the JOLTS report came out and there were, and the number of job openings just absolutely plummeted. You know, and I read some articles, some some more upbeat people saying, hey, this is, you know, this is good. This is what the Fed wants, you know, reducing the number of, of jobs and, and maybe not having to have too high of an unemployment. Is this, uh, you know, is this a pipe dream? I think it is. Um, I, I'd say what's positive is you've got a stock guy and a bond guy agreeing in lockstep. I mean, that's if, if it's not positive, it's at least rare, right? Um, no, I mean, on average, in the 20 years prior to the pandemic, you had roughly 5 million more unemployed workers in the economy than jobs that were available. That was the equilibrium level that yielded a 2% wage inflation number. Oh, that's positive. Um, today, we've got 5 million more job openings than we do unemployed people. That's an imbalance of 10 million, 10 million jobs. Even if I assume that there's some double counting in those job openings, which I think there likely is, I still have an imbalance of about five, five and a half million jobs. I think that's the increase in the unemployment that's ultimately required to get back to a 2% inflation. Well, you know, on 150 million person labor force, that's taking the unemployment rate, not from three, five to to four, four, but something closer to six or 7%, which I think is ultimately, you know, where that kind of has to go. Six to 7% when? Will that damage be done by next year end, do we think? No, so I think it's going to take a while. And I think that's why the Fed is signaling that they're going to keep rates high for a while, because, you know, the experience of companies that did lay off workers in 2020 was it helped for a month and then they spent two years trying to hire them back. And so the the, the Fed is afraid that in a quick pivot, people will try to wait them out and hold on to those workers. So by communicating that they're going to keep rates high through 23, we'll see if they actually can. But in communicating that, I think they're trying to tell employers it's not going to get better anytime soon. The pain's going to be in place for a while. Cut your labor costs now. If not, if not a dismal decade, uh, a dismal outlook for some foreseeable future. Now, Steve, is a recession appropriately priced in to the equity market? No, no. I mean, I think what you'll see is that historically, the average recession decline in an equity market, you know, is somewhere in the order of 30, 35 percent down off of a peak at PE levels that are, you know, really in the kind of 13, 14 times range. You know, today we're down roughly 25%. I think the, the, the trailing PE is still something like 17 times. I think there's still a desire for tech and high beta to run every time there's a whiff of something that's right. And I think from a sentiment perspective, and then I'll, I'll close it there, this market's been calling for a Fed pivot and a rally the moment they started hiking in March, only to be Charlie Brown with a football four or five times this year. 
And I don't think that sentiment has yet been crushed, regardless of what the sentiment surveys purport to say. Don, is it is the is the recession priced into the bond market? Here I'm thinking of credit and particularly the high yield market. No, Linda, it is not. High yield spreads are about 300, you know, let's say 535 basis points over Treasury. That's where they closed um, on Friday. 535 is nowhere near the peak you get in recessions. It's typically about 1,000 basis points over Treasuries. Uh, likewise, investment grade corporate spreads closed last Friday at 142 basis points. They typically go to about 250. And typically, you see a flight to quality buying of treasuries. Treasury yields are dropping in a recession, not rising as they have been this year. Uh, so the short answer is no, no recession priced into the bond market. So we're steering clear of credit at Federated Hermes in general, are we? And when should we buy? What part of the curve should we buy? When is it interesting to start going out long on the yield curve? Well, you know, I think you want to avoid credit for sure. Uh, I think you want to stay up in quality. We like treasuries. Um, you know, in terms of is now the time to extend it? it it really depends on what you think the terminal Fed fund rate is going to be, which is a function of what you think inflation is going to be ultimately. Um, you know, typically the 10 year treasury yield peaks at around the terminal Fed fund rate. If you think the terminal Fed fund rate is going to be about 4.6%, which is what's priced into the uh, Fed fund futures market, then yeah, the bulk of the move higher is behind us. So around 4% or above is probably a good time to start extending. Uh, on the other hand, if you think inflation's not coming down next year and it's going to stay stuck at around 4%, say, then typically, in order to get inflation back down to target in the past during high inflation periods, the Fed has had to get the Fed funds rate one to 200 basis points over the inflation rate. So if inflation gets stuck at 4%, which I think might be what Steve is, is, uh, is expecting, then the Fed funds rate's got to go to 5%, at least, maybe a little bit higher. In that scenario, you might be better off staying in the short end of the Treasury curve and not extending quite yet. But it all depends on where you think inflation is going, because that tells you how high the Fed funds rate is going, and that tells you how high the long end of the Treasury curve is going. I want to just add on to this point, because it, you can't really make an equity call right now without understanding what's going on in the fixed income markets. And this duration call, I think, is, is absolutely critical. When do you lengthen your duration? When do you think you've hit the terminal rate, et cetera, et cetera? And I think you know, one of the things to keep in mind is the market is obsessed with this concept of a Fed pause and then you know, when they start cutting. Well, you know, Feds generally pause about six months before the start of a recession. And markets tend to bottom about one year after the first rate cut historically. And so, you know, our, our comment about patient, about this is going to take longer, I, I think is about exactly what we're talking about. I can't expect bonds to start rallying until I've seen a peak in inflation. And it isn't until bonds start rallying and I start being able to, you know, get inflation down enough that the Fed can cut that I can really start get aggressive on the equity side. And so we've dealt with severe downturns. I think what makes this one different and what's confounding both the bond and the stock market right now is that this one may very well be defined by its duration. And this is a hmm. longer period of economic blah, for lack of a better term. I've been curious really for quite some months as to the uh, 
the risks that we're showing ourselves, the volatility that we're showing itself in both the currency and the, and the bond markets, but the VIX, uh, the, the, our own volatility index doesn't seem to be able to make its way towards 40. And it, I don't know about you, Steve, but in my travel, people keep asking me, what should I buy? What, where is the fear in the stock market? Yeah, I don't think stock only investors appreciate some of the financial market risks because they're, they're, they're really bond oh. risks. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to say, having grown up in the equity world, that we generally aren't the, the crises don't start in the equity world. They, they start in credit. They start in the bond world. And I think, you know, I like to think about it this way. If I go on to a roller coaster and I get sick, I'm mildly annoyed. If I go to a theme park and I go on the merry-go-round and it goes too fast and I get sick, I sue the park. And, and I think what you're seeing right now is tremendous volatility in what's supposed to be the world's safest assets which are sovereign bonds, right? And so anytime you're taking on leverage, you're generally holding as collateral a sovereign bond, whether it's a short-term T-bill or a long-term treasury or a gilt in, in, in the UK or, or, or you know, whatever jurisdiction you're in. You're not expecting those instruments to fall 20, 30%, right? The 30-year treasury is down in excess of 30% this year. And so when you're thinking about the risk models at financial institutions, they're not expecting that collateral to fall to that extent and you get margin called. And I think that's what's happened in the UK. They, they got margin called because their collateral deteriorated in terms of value. And that's a risk. And, and I think it's a risk that's out there in the market that's not totally appreciated by equity only investors because it's, it's kind of foreign to them. Um, I think if something breaks, that'll get priced into the VIX very, very quickly. And there's a game of chicken. The Fed's trying to break the back of inflation and get that bond market to rally before you cause a financial accident. Because the alternative, which is the kind of stimulative measures that, that the BOE have employed, aren't working, right? Rates are right back higher than they were before the intervention. So you really got to get this inflation under control or else the risk of a financial market accident increases. So Don, here, here's Steve telling us that the stock market investors are just, they just don't really appreciate the risks out there. They're not watching what's going on with the, the rest of the world. And I mean, the bond market, the bond market was always so boring. It was always so very, very boring. And this has been an historic year. If, there, if Tina was, was our mantra, there is no place, there is no alternative but to invest in stocks. And now Steve is warning us that we're being Pollyannish over in the stock market. You know, is there any chance that Maybe there's no alternative. We should be buying the U.S. government bond market because it's gotten crushed after this historic year. What do you say? In nine of the last 14 years, Linda, the Fed funds rate has been zero. Money was free. Cash was trash. But you're right. You know, today, one year Treasury bills yield four and a quarter percent. Treasury bills are sexy again. So investors finally have a safe alternative to stocks and bonds that at least pays them something on a nominal basis, if not after inflation. I mean, you're right about Tina. Tina, there is no alternative. You have to buy stocks and high-yield bonds. Well, you know, Tina really is dead because cash is now an attractive, stable, and investable asset class, particularly, as Steve pointed out, when bond and stock prices are experiencing head-spinning volatility. And when the risk-free rate is rising, that raises the bar for the minimum return on other asset classes. And that's a headwind to both stocks and bonds going forward. 
So Cash is not just king, he's a sexy one. That's exactly right. That's what I think I heard you just say. Now, Sylvia, I'm I'm not feeling very uh, bullish about your answer to these two questions, but there's been a lot of damage done in Europe and in China, two major regions of the world that we might invest in, and for different reasons that we're all well aware of. Is either one of them investable in your view today? Well, it depends on the time horizon, I, I guess. Uh, meaning that uh, I think there will be more pain in in Europe uh, as uh, Europe is struggling to achieve energy independence and resilience. Uh, Also, Europe is struggling with the usual institutional challenges and clearly needs more integration at a political level to make sure that the currency uh, is is strong. It needs like a, a, a safe uh, Euro asset, and clearly we are we are still quite far from from that. But I think that we are heading in 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 the right direction. And as a matter of fact, this crisis could actually be a trigger to um, to excite some positive developments, also on the integration side, and uh, more I'd say materially on the energy side. So. Europe has now invested more in uh, renewable sources and in the medium term, so like three to five years down the line, uh, we might see like a strong Europe in terms of energy resilience, but also in terms of moving towards uh, its uh, target of uh, net zero. Uh, So again, there will be more pain in the short term. It will be like a painful transition, but longer term that should pay off. And so uh, for like an investor with a longer term horizon, uh, Europe, which is quite cheap, I'd say, <laughs> this day could be uh, a good bet. And China? Well, as I said earlier, I'm a bit more cautious uh, with respect to China. Uh, there are some like long-term uh, structural challenges for the economy. Uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the property sector, uh, but also, I'd say, uh, regarding the transition from a middle-income uh, economy to a more advanced economy, uh, and that's and it's not obvious that China has all the um, features uh, in terms of human capital um, and and an investment in productive human capital uh, in order to to get there. Of course, I mean Chinese policymakers um, might. Uh, take the right decisions going forward. But as of now, I'm quite cautious uh, about Chinese growth uh, in the next few years. Quite cautious. So, you know, I've seen the uh, the acronym TINA, TNAC. There's no, uh, there's no alternative country uh, than investing here in the U.S. Sylvia, I'd like to ask you, from your perspective, where now with, with all the discussion we're running, we're quickly running out of time here uh, with our guests, is uh, where would you suggest internationally I want to invest now. What, what, what should I do? Well, it's it's a very tough one, as, as you said. Clearly, the U.S. is the U.S. economy is outperforming the rest of the world, uh, and so it still looks attractive in relative terms, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, of course, in a longer uh, time horizon, as I said, Europe might prove um, a good bet. As I said, it, lo- it looks quite cheap right now. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, once these um, headwinds uh, from like a stronger dollar, emerging markets, uh, which of course are very complex and, and varied um, set of countries, uh, might also uh, offer some, some opportunities, also some opportunities to diversify, I would say. 
Well, that yeah, that's actually very, very good advice. And we know diversification is job one, and we can't we can't uh, really tell for sure what the future holds. So it might be interesting to put your eggs in that basket, Don. I'm sure I don't need to ask you. I think you've made very clear your views and uh, how cash is looking attractive now for the first time in quite a very, very long time. Uh, definite deserves some sort of a of a place uh, be, before we say goodbye. I'd like to. Um, I'd like to ask Steve one last question. I know that your team also puts together a recession dashboard and that you have been uh, been working with quite, I think might be the longest the longest lived alive of the, of the dashboards that you offer. Uh, what is your recession dashboard telling us in terms of we're in a recession now, it's likely to start when, that sort of a thing? There are several indicators that are, are kind of on the verge here, right? So unemployment claims at one point had rise, had risen sufficiently. They've come back in a little bit. You know, credit spreads, particularly high yield spreads, you know, they got basically to 600, which is kind of what you'll see before a recession, not in a recession, but before a recession, they've come in a little bit. ISM is teetering. And so I think it paints a very similar picture to what, what Don had mentioned earlier, which was an economy that certainly had some weakness in the first part of this year. But that's not the recession we're talking about. We're talking about a consumer and kind of housing-led recession. And, and we're not quite there yet, but you're certainly moving in that direction. And if I may, I just say this, because this has been a very bearish discussion. You know, Federated is historically a very bullish shop. The bull has not lost its horns here. You know, I think the bigger picture here is that we think that the Fed will crush this inflation through a recession in 23. And when you're on the other side of that, you know, you may be in a scenario, and I think we likely will be in a scenario where you can buy growth stocks between 16 or 18 times, not 30 or 31 times. And you can buy cyclicals down, you know, 40 or 50% off of their peaks. Those are attractive entry points. I, I don't want to put any words in, in Don's mouth, but I also suspect that at the end of that recession, you may see some really attractive nominal yields on credit instruments, you know, high yield bonds. If you've got a two, or, or three basis, you know, two or 300 basis point 10 year with a spread of a thousand basis points. When was the last time you could load up on a high yield bond with a nominal yield, you know, 12 or 13%. And so I think there's generational and career defining buying opportunities that are coming. The risk is that because all of our downturns have been so short in recent years that you jump the gun too soon and you're not patient enough. And I think patience and humility are what you're hearing from us. And I think those virtues are likely to be rewarded in, in the weeks and months to come. Well, that's a great way to, to end our hour today. And uh, that is uh, it for our time for today. I wish to thank you very much, Steve, Sylvia, and Dawn for your insights today. And thank you all to the attendees for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again on the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to the Federated Hermes channel to get every Here and Now episode, plus our other series, Amplified and Fundamentals, for a global perspective on the issues, challenges, and trends shaping the investment landscape. I also encourage you to subscribe to our Insights email updates for the latest market commentary from the many great minds of Federated Hermes and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Views are as of October 11, 2022 and are subject to change based on market conditions and other factors. This should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.
Bond prices are sensitive to changes in interest rates and a rise in interest rates can cause a decline in their prices. High yield, lower rated securities generally entail greater market credit slash default in liquidity risks and may be more volatile than investment grade securities. International investing involves special risks, including currency risk, increased volatility, political risks, and differences in auditing and other financial standards. Prices of emerging markets securities can be significantly more volatile than the prices of securities in developed countries, and currency risk and political risks are accentuated in emerging markets. Stocks are subject to risks and fluctuate in value. Yield curve is a graph showing the comparative yields of securities in a particular class according to maturity. Securities on the long end of the yield curve have longer maturities. Duration is a measure of a security's price sensitivity to changes in interest rates. Securities with longer durations are more sensitive to changes in interest rates than securities of shorter durations. WTI, West Texas Intermediate, tracks crude oil prices. PE is price to earnings ratio. BOE is the Bank of England. The Institute of Supply Management or ISM non-manufacturing index is a composite forward-looking index derived from a monthly survey of US businesses. Beta analyzes the market risk of an investment by showing how responsive the investment is to the market. Federated Investment Management Company.